2: may not feel too classy begging just to eat but you know who does that? Lassie and she always gets a treat so you wonder what your part is cause you're homeless and depressed but home is where the heart is so your
0: real home's in your chest everyone's a hero in their own way
2: Everyone's got villains they must face They're not as cool as mine But folks, you know it's fine to know your place Everyone's a hero in their own way In their own not
3: that heroic way so maybe it would be helpful if I talked to you very briefly about how it is that we came to be doing the show that we're doing right now, and it all started with an idea uh, from Olivia, one of our wonderful interns here, who wanted to do a show initially on cult TV, and she named three shows that she thought were symbolic of that, and I said, well, two of those are Joss Whedon shows. Maybe you really want to do a show about Joss Whedon, and we talked more and more about it, and, and we realized, I think, that, that Joss Whedon as an auteur has been kind of a pace car for American culture, that there's a transition that American culture made uh, during the time that Joss Whedon was creating things like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel and Firefly uh, and the, and Dollhouse, and then transitioning onto movies, the two Avengers m- movies. There's a kind of an interesting sensibility and a transition that American culture made. That that he, you know, he's he's kind of know, a pace car. I can't think of a better term than that. He's in some sense been. The, the phenomenon that you watch to understand a sensibility that's much more pervasive than just the work of Joss Whedon. So we decided we would do a show about Joss Whedon, and I immediately wanted to do it with Janine Basinger, who's the chair of film studies department at Wesleyan University, and as I had been told... Uh, a great mentor to Joss Whedon during his time at Wesleyan. Uh, and then we discover, so she's here with us today, and so is uh, David Lavry, uh, author of Joss Whedon: A Creative Portrait from Buffy the Vampire Slayer to the Avengers. Um, he's a director of graduate studies in English at Middle Tennessee State University and the co-founder of the Whedon Studies Association. Yes, there is such a thing. There's a, uh, in fact, a uh, there's a journal, uh, an academic journal of Whedon Studies uh, as well. Uh, And then we thought, that's great. We'll just talk about Joss Whedon. And then it turned out actually that Joss Whedon was willing to be on the show. So now we can't talk about him in absentia, or I guess we will do that a little bit later after he departs. We'll talk about him behind his back. But right now we're going to talk to all three uh, of these people. They're all with us together. And so first of all, let me say hello to each uh, and every one of you. Uh, Janine, welcome to the Colin McEnroe Show. And we can't thank hear her. Thank you very oh, there much, she is. Colin. There, there she is. There's Janine. Uh, David Lavery, uh, welcome to this conversation. Yeah.
4: Well, I'm here. I've, yeah. <laughs> I'm here, too. Thank you for having me.
3: All right. And Joss Whedon, thank you for joining us for a conversation about you.
2: I'm actually not here. This is an automated reply. <laughs> All right.
3: Well, I mean, maybe, Joss Whedon, the first question to ask is, how uncomfortable are you with a conversation about you?
2: Um. Uh, what... Percentage do you think will be praise? If (laughs) if there's a lot of praise, I'm probably going to be fine. Um, If there's just a normal amount of praise, I might get bored or Uh, distracted. All right. I, I watch well, them very uncomfortable with it, but I'm, but I'm going with it. All
3: right. Um, so I, I want to begin, uh, Joss Whedon. By um, yeah, I think everybody who does something probably has a moment as a young person when they realize that that's a job. You know that that there's the thing that they like, the thing that they're enjoying, the thing that they're uh, consuming, whatever it is. That's a job that you get. Other people are getting paid for. Maybe. I could do that job. Um, did, did you have a moment like that where you suddenly thought, wait a minute, this is this thing that I love. I could actually do it.
2: Well, my father was a television writer, and so was his father. So very early on, I had the, the idea that um, I could get a job that was not an actual job. I loved to draw and to sing, and to, I loved the arts and all of that stuff. Anything, all of that appealed to me from the very start. Um, anything where I didn't actually have to learn a skill. Um, It seemed like a really good job for me. I
3: I, I will say that I am of an age where I probably consumed television that was written by your grandfather, like the Donna Reed show or something. I was probably watching Captain Kangaroo when your father was uh, was writing for it, and obviously I've consumed a fair amount of your work. So uh, I guess I'm a three-generation Whedon. I don't know you know, what that does for me. Uh,
2: Um, Well, it's it's worked for me as I go with it.
3: (laughs) Um, And and the other thing I wanted to ask you about before we pull in our other two guests here. So you and I are about nine years apart in age. I'm a little bit older than you are. And so I actually, and, and I was a comic book reader. I watched the transition from DC to Marvel, from Superman and Batman, whom I had been reading, you know, in third and fourth grade. And suddenly... Marvel Comics came along and there was this completely different sensibility these people who were sort of aware of the bind they were in they were aware that it was not natural to be putting on costumes and running around trying to save people they were asking questions that Superman and Batman and, and the Green Arrow and the Green Lantern never asked and it was to me it was this incredible it was a real paradigm shift it was a real jolt and I guess I'm wondering when did you encounter that sensibility which I think has gone on to also permeate your work
2: well i um i started out as a marvel boy my dad was running the electric company when they made a deal with spider-man to do spidey stories and so they gave him a bunch of comics when i was nine years old and he just dropped them by my bed and they were from some of them were a little older than than current but there was spider-man and dr strange and all sorts of stuff and and uh and from the moment I picked them up, that was it for me. I did obviously. We all made his into the Batman world because he can be fascinating. But ultimately, um, yeah, I was I was right when they had already established their identity. Marvel had as uh, the the superhero as complete shemp.
3: <laughs> so, uh, so David Lavery, I, I know in your book that you kind of draw a, a straight line from that, too. I think actually in your book that you say you personally as a child didn't make that transition from DC to Marvel. But there, there is some kind of, uh, of thing, uh, a sense of humor and, and a real kind of almost postmodern awareness uh, among the characters that uh, I think, David, you see crossing into the work of Joss Whedon
4: that's right i did not make the transition to marvel i was a strict uh, dc kid and i don't think read any of the marvel until i until i really started plunging into it to help me understand uh, joss's work um but uh, i you know looking back i think i was remotely aware of it but i wanted to think i was much more stable than the uh, average marvel character and uh, that was wrong of course but i was pretending i was
3: well, there, Yeah, the, Jules Feiffer, uh, Joss Whedon, has that great essay, The Great Comic Book Heroes, where he, he actually talks about the difference between Superman and Batman. He says, you know, if you were relatively mentally healthy, you could stand to be Batman. You would take your lumps, you'd get knocked down, you'd get back up again. Pretty soon you would prevail over your, uh, over your nemesis. But if you were, in Jules Pfeiffer's words, kind of neurotic, the way Jules Pfeiffer thought of himself, you really needed Superman. There was kind of a sense in which the more downtrodden and insecure you felt, the more you needed to project uh, onto somebody who was far, far, far more uh, powerful and and invulnerable than you were. I don't know, what role did superheroes play for you, Joss, as as a boy consuming them?
2: Well, I think everything... um Everything I wanted was interested. I read a ton of science fiction, um, and everything was about, you know, situations that were more than, people who were slightly more than. Um, the Superman aspect of it, for me, I was never particularly interested in somebody who appeared to have it all together, to be a perfectly, not only a powerful being, but a well adjusted normal guy. I knew from a very early age that that was not going to be me. And, um, Most of the stories that uh, appealed to me were about people who categorically shouldn't be uh, in positions of power, who are called (laughs) upon to do Superman's job, but don't, but don't, don't think they have the wherewithal.
3: Um, Janine Basinger, I want to get you into this conversation. I should say that we are connecting with Gene Basinger through South Dakota Public Radio with a very complicated uh, set of relays, the likes of which I have never personally seen before. But we're very excited about it. So, Janine Basinger, when you you encountered this young man uh, at Wesleyan, um, who was he to you? How did he present himself to you? What did you think he was going to be doing with himself?
0: Well he was my superhero first of all all superheroes were born in South Dakota you need to know that okay. <laughs> and secondly women shouldn't get left out of the superhero discussion a Superman is on at is feeling I go with Batman if I'm having a date and I'm forget that it's very important but when I encountered Joss at Wesleyan uh, well I guess he was my superhero because he was a, of course don't be embarrassed Joss a really fabulous student an original thinker and somebody who you just knew was born to be a storyteller and those things were very very clearly in place already with him in college.
3: All right, uh, Ultron is slightly jamming some of our transmissions, but we are uh, we're going to work on uh, clearing up uh, what what Janine is saying. Um, I want to talk, uh, Joss Whedon, while while we're here uh, about uh, while you're here um, uh, about first of all, what it's like to be you these days, and specifically, one of the things I, I was wondering was. I mean, now your name is kind of an adjective. There's a Whedon-esque or Whedonian. There's, as we said, uh, there's Whedon studies. Um, If I were in your position, I would start thinking about maybe doing some work under a pseudonym. I was noticing there's a new book out called The Death of Rex Nongo, and nobody really knows uh, who wrote it, but clearly the name on the cover is not correct. Uh, Is there any part of you that thinks it might be fun actually to do something that nobody knew Joss Whedon did?
2: Yeah, I do. Actually, I think about that a lot, especially when I think about um, writing prose or mm-hmm. writing books, which is something that appeals enormously to me, um, just to see, you know, could I get any traction in the world um, without, uh, you know, having a name? Um, I mean, I'd put a name. I just it would be fake.
0: Yeah. Um,
2: but I uh, and also I've I recently was at Comic-Con and they're like, so we refer to being Whedon as when somebody you like dies. Um, so my name has like become a verb, but not a great one—not sort of the verb I would have hoped for. So, uh, yeah, I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't mind trading it in for a spell.
3: So, so I didn't know that that was what uh, the, the the verb to weeden is. So everything that people now have to deal with with Game of Thrones is that weedening when somebody on Game of Thrones dies. I'm,
2: I'm trying to get them to say martening. <laughs> yeah,
3: I know. I, I mean, why should you have to own this?
2: Yeah, it's, uh, it's, 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 a, it's
3: it's a burden. Can, but, can, yeah. you, can you absolutely guarantee me that there isn't something out right now that Joss Whedon wrote that just doesn't have the name Joss Whedon? I mean, why would you tell anybody if that was your purpose in the first place?
2: Um, no, but, you know, it's it's very hard for me not to tell people when I've done something. <laughs> I mean, if, you know, it could be my show, and if there's somebody else's script and there's a joke, they laugh. I will raise my hand. I wrote that. It was me. I wrote that. And they're like, yeah, we know where you're your writing staff. It's just embarrassing for yourself. (laughs) I I love getting credit. I hate taking it where it's not mine. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a struggle with the Writers Guild a lot of times, losing credit on things I've worked on or getting credit for things. I didn't write um, the Guild... I had to fight with them to take my name off of Much Ado About Nothing as writer.
3: <laughs> um, that seems like a reasonable request on your part. So, um, you know, I described you as kind of a pace car. And what I mean by that is that I think over the course of your writing career and your directing career, your auteur career, there's been a kind of a transition, what used to be a fairly marginalized type of culture, science fiction, fantasy, comic book stuff. It is now pretty much the dominant culture. Um, is this is it, overall, do you does this strike you as a good thing, or do you miss the days when it was kind of a niche product?
2: No, you know what I mean. There's always love of the sort of the B picture and the you know the, the struggling little movie with the, with the terrible effects or the you know the John Carpenter you know zombie western. It's it's uh, you know those sort of things. They crop up in different ways though. I like the idea of that there is so much science fiction just because I like it so well. I think the, 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 the hero culture thing is, is complicated for me. And if you you look at the seven years of Buffy, it ends with her basically debunking the concept of the chosen one and saying, hey, what if all of us had the same opportunity? Hmm. And, um, and even in, in Ultron particularly, you can see that I've become increasingly uncomfortable with the idea of the iconic hero, just because at a at a time, particularly now when authoritarianism and potential fascism is really rife in this country, uh, I'm not really comfortable with the man who says I alone can fix it, hmm. and the idea of of sharing power and of getting back to stories about people who aren't necessarily going to win um, is now more interesting to me.
3: And do, you, do you see the work that you do as having a message like that? I mean, you're right, that we're, we're at a moment right now where there's at least one person who's saying to us a lot, me, only I can fix what's wrong. Something is terribly wrong with this country. There's only one person who can deal with it. It's me. I'm that guy. And, I mean, are you conscious of... Of having a different message that you want to put out there
2: yes it's it's um you know it's the idea has always been community and sacrifice and that's why there's a body count Mm -hmm. and that's why even when I'm trying to write about one person I always end up with a group because you know we can only solve problems as a community and and that and just as a human being to be completely alone is is not necessarily healthy; some people can pull it off, <laughs> but um you know, reaching out to the world, which I personally am not great at, which is why I write about it. I think it's very important for us just on a personal level and on a societal level, so it's something that I want to just revel in the big punches and the explosions and whatnot, but I always come back to the you know sort of like we we need to like dig in together and link arms and and all get this done, which doesn't really do much if you're Superman.
3: Right. And and so in that first Avengers movie, I should say, as a little kid, I had plastic men and I would get on the floor with them and act out kind of comic book stories and, and there was a way that I pictured them in my head and in the first uh, Avengers movie during that final battle I guess people now call it the battle for New York or the battle of New York There's kind of there was a moment where I thought this is it this is exactly what I had in mind this is how I wanted to see this up on a screen and it, there's a little of that thing, that notion of people literally having each other's backs it's a term we now use mm-hmm. metaphorically but this notion of all these people kind of cooperating and there's action and it's moving very fast and there's terrible dangers out there and there's this group of people who despite the fact that they have rather complicated backstories and and have personality clashes are assisting one another in this really kind of amazing way i, I take it that is what you you were going for that particular feeling
2: you know when i when i was um when i was in at wesley with Janine, you know we watched the old platoon movies um you know and and uh we watched the old westerns and we watched um you know, the movies from the, the 30s to the 50s where the idea of a man was, you know, how he behaves with the man next to him and where everybody is willing to give up everything. And this sort of, like, self-made billionaire Tony Stark version of the world is a modern invention that doesn't really appeal to me. I don't think it really helps us. Um, and uh, it's fun to play with, but at some point, you have to understand that, that there is a price to play. And the reason Iron Man worked was that they, right up front at the very beginning of their first movie, said, Oh, yeah, no, look, he's getting people killed. He doesn't get it. He's just, you know, a solipsistic um, billionaire who's about to figure out heroism. So they sort of earned that. But for me, those stories, movies like Batan, were just so resonant for me. Um, let, um, th- that's the ethos that I always come back to.
3: Uh, we're talking to Joss Whedon, Janine Basinger, and uh, David Lavery. Let me, let's uh, try the South Dakota public radio technology one more time and shoot things out, out to Janine uh, Basinger. You know, he talks about studying Westerns uh, at, at Wesleyan, and we recently did a show about Westerns. And I was sort of struck, particularly during the 1950s, in the way that Joss is saying there was this kind of great man theory of Westerns. I mean, later on, people would make movies like Silverado and Lonesome Dove and— uh, uh, things like that that were a little bit more team oriented, a little bit more, and I guess there was, you know, obviously Magnificent Seven and stuff. But there seemed to be, in the way that he's saying, a 1950s ethos, a post-war ethos of, yeah, you need one man, you need Shane or somebody to come in and and clean clean up this town. Uh, Janine, d- does that seem right, or am I am I oversimplifying here as I usually do? Well, it's
0: occasion. West in the silent yeah. community driven.
3: I think we are a sense of that. Yeah, but oh, there we go. Uh, I think I think we are getting. getting we're, yeah, we're getting jammed by Ultron here. We're gonna what we're gonna do is we're gonna grab a break here. We're gonna try to fix this problem. Um, Joss Whedon, uh, I know that you have to go. Do you want to stay a few more minutes past the break, or do you have to go on and uh, create something exciting? I got a few minutes. All right, so we'll grab a quick break. We'll see if we can fix the technology here, and we'll be right back.
1: Every single night, the same arrangement I go out and fight the fight Still I always feel the strangest strangement Nothing here is real, nothing here is right I've been making shows of trading blows Just hoping no-
3: All right. We are back. Uh, We're doing a show about the uh, work and influence of Joss Whedon. Joss Whedon has joined us for this show. So is Janine Basinger. uh, Out in South Dakota, David Lavery, who's the author of Joss Whedon, a creative portrait from Buffy the Vampire Slayer to the Avengers. Um, Actually, I think we may have Janine on the phone now. Janine, are you on the phone? Can you hear me?
1: Yes, I am. Oh,
3: so much better. Yes, we can hear you so much better. And that's so reassuring to hear your voice. Let me ask you a slightly different question. When you uh, go to the movies and and you watch the work of Joss Whedon, or if you watch it on, on television, uh, do you see specific things, specific movies, styles, ideas th- that that you're aware of him having learned in the classroom at, at Wesleyan? Do you think, oh yeah, I made him watch that movie and look at it up there?
1: <laughs> Look, Joss is an original. You know, you you whatever he learned or saw in the from past movies or got in my class, has been totally or or uh, Richard Slotkin's class has been totally filtered through. His own sensibility And the fact that he puts Those movies to use He puts all his knowledge of literature And you know All the things A vast knowledge of popular culture But once in a while I I see A little thing, oh patrol Or oh group or westerns is Particularly I see um, But you know for me I, I definitely perceive It as work by Joss Because I hear his voice. I feel his concerns. You know, people sometimes ask me, who is Buffy? And I say, Buffy is Joss. I mean, there isn't any other answer. I mean, it's, you know, he's made things so much his own, and the kinds of conventions that come out of genre that he understands and uses, the whole reason they're in our culture is to be tempered and redesigned and reconstituted and brought forth through the creative voice of a new generation. And that's what Josh has done with them.
3: Um Joss, uh, one of the things that I think that you have done that I'm so uh, appreciative of is integrate the the fanciful and fantastic life of characters with their daily lives. I actually do remember uh, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer uh, episode in which you know she's fighting vampires, she's staving off the end of the world, uh, and at the same time I think she's talking about having to take the SATs the next day. Um, and, And certainly in the most recent Avengers movies, we see Hawkeye go home and there's some kind of floor repair. That his wife wants him to do in one of the rooms of their house. There's this kind of notion that people have actual lives in addition to all this stuff. Is that an important thing for you to drive home? Why? And if so, why is it important?
2: Well, I, I mean, I certainly can't take credit for it because that, you know, Stanley's DNA is all over that yeah. too. Um, uh, Spider-Man certainly had, you know, plenty of tests when he was off fighting Doc Ock. But, um, but I. Uh, for me, it's very important because it's um it connects the audience I mean the idea behind Buffy was, oh, it's a metaphor you know high school is really difficult, high school is hell, and therefore let us you know let's make every situation kind of work metaphorically, but let's also just hit all the time that these that they're just folk um because the relatability of something is if the audience isn't going through what the characters going through then it's it's for me it's a painting. It's just a curio, something to look at. Um, that kind of very direct involvement is something I'm after all the time.
3: Is there resistance to that? I mean I, I would assume that there are some people and when I was eleven years old I might have been that person who I really who wouldn't want to see Hawkeye go home to a house where he's got kids. He's got all the that he's like your parents or something that you don't want the superhero to be that you want the superhero to be a completely unfamiliar actor in your life. Are there either fans or people at at movie studios who who don't want you to do that?
2: Well, I think um, there are fans who don't want you to do anything that you do. (laughs) Um, I've learned about that from Twitter. But um, uh, you know the thing with Hawkeye. And there was more of it in the original cut was we spent a lot of time going, he has a dark secret, maybe he's turning against them, we don't know, he was bad last time. And then we find out, oh, his dark secret is he's literally the only member of the team who's a well-adjusted person who lives in society and has a family. And um, to me, it was a slightly hilarious, but also incredibly important. Yeah, you don't want to see Thor going to, you know, to have his hammer repaired. You don't want to see you know the the mundane parts of certain people's lives but uh to throw the light of saying you know some of us do the job and go home Mm -hmm. and you people are all very maladjusted because um power is ultimately the only thing that i'm writing about it's either about people who don't have it and get it or people who have it and have to deal with it power separates us from humanity being being bigger than or being in charge of means you don't get to be as good a person as someone who's just out there trudging. As soon as you have the power to affect lives, that you're not necessarily in, part of you is a little monstrous. Part of you is going to do a little damage, um, and part of you is going to do great things. But you won't be connecting with people, and so that, to me, is is you know the sort of second half of my my. My dialogue about power and Hawkeye was—that was one of my favorite things I ever did. Clearly, the Westerns class influenced uh, all of that stuff, um, but uh, just in terms of where he lives and his family. But um, but it also uh, it also was a way to counter the bombast of the superhero sort of mythos, and I think it needed a little of that.
3: Um, David Lavery. One of the things that Joss Whedon does, and that Marvel Comics did uh, early on, is is blend humor with really dire situations. For the most part prior to marvel in the dc universe that that you preferred people were pretty serious about what they were doing this was serious stuff the only answer that any of the heroes ever had was more serious stuff and suddenly there was this world i mean spider-man was really funny you know i started reading him very early on in the series he was and he was funny all the way through and and you know there, there was suddenly this world of banter um and and i'm i'm wondering David Lavery, what you see as the impact of that or or, or the way in which that this kind of Whedon-esque uh, use of humor in fairly dire situations has bled across a lot of genres?
4: Well, I really think that that's one of the major contributions that uh, Joss has made in, in the uh, pace car, as you call it. Um you see it everywhere now, even Game of Thrones uh mingles uh dark dark, dark themes with uh, great humor. Um, I always like to make the analogy, and i'm sure that uh, uh joss won 't object at least I hope he won't uh, that it's very much Shakespearean mm-hmm. uh in the centuries following shakespeare's Time on this planet, he was often criticized for that very thing, for merging tragedy, pathos, and and humor. Uh, The Baudelaire's versions of Shakespeare took the humor, often took the humor out because it was considered too naughty, too earthy, too body. B-A-W-D-I-Y body um and Whedon does very much that same sort of thing uh he manages somehow to make us cry and then turn around and laugh uh, in in the in a heartbeat uh so that's i think is uh, if we if there is any uh
3: particular thing that is is Whedon-esque,
4: uh, I think it's probably
3: that well can we talk about Shakespeare for a second we just did a show a couple of weeks ago up at Lennox at Shakespeare and Company uh, where Tina Packer is directing Merchant of Venice now Joss, Merchant of Venice is considered a comedy it's considered a romantic comedy it has th- this horrible you know plot or subplot to it I mean incredible uh, evocations of anti-semitism and then a man made so bitter by that that he want literally wants a pound of flesh out of somebody else yeah I mean first of all I would love to see a Joss Whedon version of this, of that particular play, but, but yeah, I would assume Shakespeare is a big influence to you in saying, eh, things don't really have to be one thing or another.
2: Yeah, for me, um, you, just the more I studied them, the more I was like, this is a very strange time to be funny, or this comedy has gone a long time into a very dark place, um, and his sort of being unafraid to mix it up and to play his own rhythms was it was was daunting but inspiring i mean i think you know you can look at so many old movies and see you know there are classic westerns like stagecoach has some great jokes in it um there there are plenty of of things that mix it up and in fact when i was working on my first movie serenity i called janine and was like i worry that you know the character of Mal is in a western, and the character of River is in a noir, and I'm not sure how to make these things work together. And she's like, well, you could start by going back and watching some of the noir westerns, like Naked Spur, and 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 the fact is they've been people have been mixing up genres long before I was, and um, I'm a little harder, I hit a little harder with the humor because, you know, I I like jokes, they're fun, um, and you know it was easy to to realize you can get a laugh much more easily if people are terrified or sad than if they're waiting for you to make them laugh.
3: Well, Janine also, noir is a case. I mean, Raymond Chandler is really funny. Uh, I mean, it's once again, I I think this is a a very American thing in some ways, in ways that, you know, Agatha Christie is not particularly funny. Sherlock Holmes is not particularly intentionally funny most of the time. But Janine Basinger, it seems to me that, for example, Philip Marlowe, he's a very entertaining guy to hang around
1: with absolutely and it's it, it's our tradition to be desperately hilarious and or to be hilariously desperate there's there's no question about it he, You see it in joss 's work. he has two outer parameters he's very, very, very funny, and he's very, very, very cruel. He takes away from us our favorite people joss that's naughty. But the thing is, it it is a very American voice. And who said that, you know, genres were single-minded or had to be single-minded? The generic mix, the mix of tone... What makes a great romantic comedy is if there's something really important at stake, which is the loss of love. These are all traditions of American film. The real popular culture voice of America is almost always got a comic undertone. Uh, And uh, I I think, you know, you really see that in combat movies. They're joking all the time, although they're on the brink of war. You know, death at any moment is coming, but there's comedy all the time. The Bud Bedecker Westerns, they're they're constantly joking as they ride along. It it is a tradition, and I think that uh, it's an American voice that you're talking about that has that quality.
3: Yeah, there does seem to be something very specifically American about that. You know, uh, Joss Whedon, I'm interested to hear you say that you called Janine Basinger when you're having that thought and having that thought about whether the characters from Firefly all come from the same genre – but I bet you that I wouldn't think that's something you think about very much. I mean, what what does it all start with? I assume it does start with characters, characters that you want to see, you want to have interact. You want to hear what they have to say about things and see what they're going to do in certain situations. Is that where it begins for you?
2: Well, it, I mean, the, the germ of a new idea, I can never tell you <laughs> where it's going to come from. It could be a structural thing. It could be a character thing. Um but once once I have sort of the concept in place or for example with the Avengers movies, you know, that was really just about can I do I have something to say? Do I want to hear these people talking to each other? And the reason I took the first movie and then in a completely separate experience decided to take the second one was both times I said, Okay, is there more to say? Is there some do I can do I get how these people work? Because it's the Avengers is, you know, again with this whole superhero thing, you're rooting for the overdog, which is not an easy thing to write. There's a lot of them, and they're very powerful. And they, and Marvel would only ever let me have one villain. I'm like, I have one British character actor against all these guys. How am I going to um, – so it uh, it really was about can I find their vulnerabilities and, you know, am, am I interested in what they have to say to each other? And, and in both cases, um, I was – Fascinated and enchanted by them, and by the chance to take characters I'd grown up with and and, uh, seen evolve and see what, uh, you know, what would really set them off against each other
3: Uh, or bond them. David Lavery, why is there a Whedon Studies Association? I mean, uh, you know, there, maybe there's a Wes Anderson Studies Association somewhere too, or a J.J. Abrams uh, you know, Journal of of Ideas, or uh, there probably will be a Shonda Rhimes one at some point. But 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 in in terms of making the case, David, uh, why why would there be something like Whedon Studies? Um,
4: two or three years ago, I saw
3: an article in in
4: Slate magazine, the online journal. And uh, the title was "What is the most studied popular culture phenomenon?" And I knew before I read it what the answer had to be. It was uh, Buffy and Whedon's work in general. And it, it, it's been fascinating over the years to watch it. I, I mean, I I have uh, said that on my gravestone, it will say "The father of Buffy studies," and it's not a bad uh, not a bad legacy. I'm quite proud of it. Uh, but the uh, it, it's it's. I've thought a lot about this and it's hard to account for it. Uh, Other popular culture phenomena have inspired books and conferences, but nothing like uh, Joss's work. Um, You know, there have been 13, 14 international conferences on, and I'm not talking about fan con, you know, uh, you know, like comic con. I'm talking about scholarly conferences. There are, now over 30 scholarly books on Whedon's work. There are over 300 published articles, scholarly articles, again, not just newspaper, magazine articles. And my brief explanation of why that's true is because academics in particular really resonate with with uh, Joss's work because of the very things we've talked about here today. They find that, uh, as I once said to an interviewer who asked me why I was so interested in Buffy, and I said it made me feel like my education wasn't for nothing. Uh, we get, we glam on to Whedon the way we glam on to a great writer and a great, a, a playwright like Shakespeare because we find things in it worthy of talking about, worthy of using our, um, subsidiary creativity, uh, uh, the kind that comes out in academic studies, you know, to, to, uh, leave our own kind of legacies about it. Uh, but there really is nothing. Uh, and I don't know how, really know how Joss feels about this. I've seen various things in interviews where he, uh, where he seems to be proud of it, and he certainly should be. But there really is nothing comparable.
3: We're going to grab a quick break here. Uh, we have just a few minutes left in this conversation. We're talking about Joss Whedon with two scholars familiar with him and also with Joss Whedon, who's also somewhat familiar with Joss Whedon. We'll come back after this.
2: He rides across the nation, the thoroughbred of sin He got the application that you just sent in It needs evaluation, so let the games begin A heinous crime, a show of force, a murder would be nice, of course bad horse. bad horse, bad horse, bad horse, he's bad The evil league of evil is watching, so beware The trade that you receive will be your last, we swear So make the bad horse gleeful, or he'll make you his mare You're saddled up, there's no recourse It's high silver side, bad horse
3: All right, we're back. We're talking about Joss Whedon uh, with uh, people who know about him and know him, and we're also talking uh, about Joss Whedon with Joss Whedon. I just want to make a Whedon-esque uh, shout-out to the team that I have. Uh, Talk about uh, Avengers, talk about a squad who has your back, and we're so proud of Olivia Piper. She's one of our interns this summer. This show is her baby. Uh, She came up with the idea and she made this happen. Uh, It's just a huge home run for uh, an intern to deliver a show of this magnitude, and I'm only in a position where I could screw up some really, really good work that she and Betsy Kaplan have done together. Uh, Jonathan McNichol is our technical producer today, and you know all about the rest of our team, but I'm— uh, so excited for Olivia Piper that the show came together for her, and it couldn't be uh, in better shape. Um, I want to talk about women, and so I'll talk to the woman uh, first, uh, Janine Basinger. You know, one of the things that there aren't a lot of is are Westerns, particularly Westerns from the glory era of Westerns, where women are the protagonists. Uh, and... Uh, it seems as though one of the things that Joss Whedon has done in his work is to bring forward women as uh, as major characters. I mean, you can't get any more major than Buffy the Vampire Slayer, you know, the leader of a, an action group. Uh, what what do you make of all this? What is what does all that mean to you uh, as somebody who's not only a mentor of Joss Whedon, but somebody who who teaches this stuff?
1: Well, first of all, there are some great Westerns that feature women, and Joss did see them at Wesleyan, and he was a TA to me who gave the greatest lecture I ever heard on Johnny Guitar, which is about a woman. So uh, Joss has always been a person who empowered women, who had respect for women and thought of them uh, as people with brains and abilities and Uh, concerns, just like guys, and I think that he saw a lot of movies that were, you know, there's a cliched idea that women stand around on porches wearing aprons waving while the cavalry rides away, whereas there are some movies like that the more often the woman is, is a powerful force in the ongoing story of the West, and particularly in ones that are community-oriented. And more often than not, a woman will pick up a gun and shoot it. Films like Westward, The Women, whatever, uh, Rancho Notorious, The Woman They Almost Lynched, all kinds of them. And he had, I don't, uh, Joss had respect and openness to stories about women, characters who were women. And I, it was no surprise that he would create a character like Buffy to me, because um, I don't think he sees women uh, in limited ways. He he had been raised by intelligent women. He... he just was he gravitates to intelligent women. He has respect for them, and the idea of empowering that I don't think that was foreign. And he did see it in in movies, even bad women uh, women who are destructive. He he can respect that kind of power also.
3: Let's hear a, a clip of one of Joss Whedon's strong women. Uh, this is from the movie Serenity. I think you're going to be hearing the voice of Kaylee, uh, one of my favorite uh, Whedon women.
1: I'm going out like
2: this Spent so much time on Serenity Ignoring anything that I wanted For myself
0: My one regret in all of this Is never being with you
1: With me? You mean to say as sex? I mean to say, hell with this. I'm going to live.
3: <laughs> so Kaylee decides there's uh, something worth living for. Um, Joss Whedon, I assume that a lot of these are very, very conscious choices on your part uh, to to make a kind of strong woman we don't necessarily see in a lot of these environments.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, there's it's, there's a twofold thing. One is everything that Janine said. There was, you know, there were these great female characters, and and you know, and I was going, um, and they would. Pick a gun or a bullwhip. Um, I have a real obsession with, you know, the earlier times when, you know, a heist didn't mean going clickety clack on a keyboard and then going we're in, where you actually <laughs> had to do things, and uh, and the way the women were treated in movies earlier um, in the silent movies in the 30s um, was very different than they were much more they had much more agency, and they had much more brio, and then they sort of started to fade back and. Because I also have a particular love of horror movies. Buffy, very specifically, and this is something I've said before, came from watching those horror movies and watching the nice blonde girl who parties go and be horribly murdered every single time. And, and uh, I, you know, helplessness is something that uh, both terrifies and fascinates me. It's something I've dealt with in my own life. And the idea that that person is the one who's going to turn around and destroy a monster was the germ of all this and it just came from a the things I had seen uh, you know it growing up and in these older movies and these are things that I was not seeing the things that I had stopped seeing and and uh, genres tend to ossify <laughs> and they tend to sort of like go in on themselves until they're no longer viable and that's why we move on to another one and um, in this case I thought well there's There's a way to give me all the things I love from a horror movie and then give me the thing I love most, which is beating up bullies. (laughs)
3: Um, And and David, I'm assuming that somewhere within that or a large portion of that world of Slayage, the journal and Whedon Whedon Studies is, you know, kind of a subgenre of everything that Jonas Whedon is doing with, with ideas about women and what they can and can't do in stories like this one.
4: Absolutely. I, I the numbers uh, somewhere are somewhere around I think 70% of the people that have been at our conferences and belong to the organization are female. And but I would I would add here that this also leads to some difficulties because as uh, Joss uh, and Janine well know, uh, he has to hit the target quite perfectly or he comes under fire hence the earlier Joss's earlier comment about Twitter Uh, when uh, uh, a a lesbian couple in uh, Buffy uh, uh, Willow and uh, Tara uh, were broken up by Tara's death uh, suddenly people who were lovers of Buffy the Vampire Slayer were attacking it and accusing Joss of all kinds of crimes um, somewhat similar things happen with, uh, Ultron. Um, it's troubling in a way because I'm very bothered by the, how purist some of the academics get about this, uh, how much everything has to toe the party line and be, pla I hate to use the term politically correct. Um, but, uh, that gets us into all kinds of issues about modern academia. Well,
1: storytellers can't pay any attention to that. They're the storytellers and they tell the stories and stories have to hurt us, make us angry, uh, not satisfy our need, our directions. They don't have to adjust the way we want them to be. We have to take them as they are. And that's the way we learn from them.
3: I couldn't agree more, uh, um, Josh Whedon. Uh, we're almost out of time here. Uh, I loved your much ado about nothing, and uh, as much as I enjoy all the work that you do uh, in fantasy and sci-fi and comic book stuff, uh, it also made me wonder how many more of these other kinds of movies we're going to get from you. Is you know, ten years from now, do you think you'll still be working mostly in the genre you work in now, or are you starting to get drawn to some of these other projects that don't identify necessarily superficially as Whedon?
2: I have always been drawn to everything. (laughs) Um, I really do love, my family used to make fun of me because there was no movie I didn't like as a kid. I just thought everything was great. Um, And uh, so actually right now I'm writing historical drama, which is very different than what I've done. It's clearly mine. It's very clearly me, just way more unhinged. Um, But... uh, You know it it is my hope always to to do the things i haven't done yet every now and then i'm gonna need a spaceship i gotta have a spaceship or i start to get twitchy but um i you know i feel like the whole point of these genres is that they all work together i've said before costume dramas are like science fiction you're creating a world you don't know and you have some maybe more visual reference but ultimately you're um you're making it up you're creating it and it's it's just as exciting um i probably will never make you know certain kind of like the you know a comedy about a family of thanksgiving probably not going to happen usually mm. i need some kind of of deeper hook but um but yeah i want to i want to do everything i want to make this a journey because it would be very i'm at the exact point in my career where it would be very easy For me, just to sort of vaguely echo myself and make a good living and never say anything new.
3: Well, we're we're exactly at the point where we have to stop, uh, and we also want you to hear. We want you to hear yourself singing too uh, as we go out here. So there's always this if the whole filmmaking thing gets boring.